Well, I am, <clears throat> I am thrilled to be with you again today. Um, the subject that we are engaged in here, that we started last night and that we're going to be continuing on today, it, it kind of blows my mind of how much we'll be going to continue on today. But the subject is the grandest subject, the most glorious subject imaginable. And it is the subject of Christ. Uh, particularly the life of Christ as related in the Gospels. Uh, last night, just before our sessions began, uh, I think a couple of you fellows uh, found on your phones or whatever the, the news of what was happening over in Paris. And, and when those things happen, when, when things of that magnitude happen, uh, we are all just uh, blown away by the wickedness and the cruelty of individuals and how life is valued so little and how hatred is so great. Now, we're never lacking a single day when we don't read in the news horrific things, horrific things. But things on a global scale and of that magnitude catch the attention of the whole world and it emphasizes to us once again how desperately this world needs Christ. This world is lost and without hope without Christ. And it's not just the world in general, but more specifically, it's people in the world. And when we stand in awe of terrorism and how wicked terrorism is and how cool terrorism is, we have to be reminded of the fact that without Christ, we are all enemies of God. All enemies of God deserving eternity in hell. And God's grace reached us. God's grace reached us. And made us into something different from what we were. We, we might have been seemingly upstanding fine citizens and good neighbors and all that, but we were sinners, rebels against God. We were guilty of, as R.C. Sproul says, we were guilty of cosmic treason and thus deserving eternal punishment. And the fact that he sent his son into this world should always thrill us, should always give us chills. And I, I can't tell you how privileged I feel to have been asked by Pastor Mike uh, to do this for you. And uh, I, I am just, <laughs> I am blessed beyond measure, honestly. So, without saying any more, we better resume our study here, okay? Part three of our study, <clears throat> which I've chosen to entitle, a bird's eye view of the ministry. Now, what did we look at in our first two sessions? Well, session one, or part one, we looked at in the beginning. <laughs> That's where the Gospel of John began, and jo the Gospel of John, in his prologue, the first 18 verses, gives us a glimpse of the pre-incarnate Christ, as well as just a couple 
notations with regard to his incarnation, like in verse 14. Then in the second session, we looked at how the Creator, because John told us right in the beginning of that prologue that all things were made by Him, the Word, the Eternal Word, the second person of the Trinity. The Creator became a creature, His incarnation. Now, we need to fast forward a little bit now to how His ministry begins. Uh, last evening in that second session, in the last part of the second session, we looked at what I called a snapshot, Dr. Luke's snapshot of that large chunk of years in Christ's life when he grew up or grew to maturity from a little baby to where he was ready to enter into his ministry. And Dr. Luke summarized it by saying, and, Jesus, and he increased in, in what? In wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and favor with man. He grew intellectually, he grew physically, he grew spiritually, and he grew socially. And all that is taking place over a period of years from probably when Jesus was maybe around two or three years old up until the time that he is ready to enter the ministry at 30 years of age. Now, bird's eye view <clears throat> of the ministry. Notice this map here, and I, I thought, I have a couple maps that I brought out in the car, and I thought of hanging one up on a wall somewhere. I mean, most, most of you probably have maps in your Bible. <clears throat> uh, you know, I, I am a big, big lover of Bible geography. I think it is one of the most significant parts of being able to understand the Scriptures and a, and a very significant element of Bible interpretation uh, being able to see the where as well as the events. And, I, you know, I think if we had time, if I could kind of snap my finger and put us into a little time warp so that time didn't move for a couple minutes and we just had time to label a map, I'd give you a blank map. And I would have us label things because we learn better when we label things on there. But lo looking at this map right here, this is a map of Palestine in the time of Christ Jerusalem is located right here. Here is the Dead Sea. Here is the Sea of Galilee, the Mediterranean Sea, or at least uh, the eastern extremity of the Mediterranean, which spreads way out that way. But Dead Sea, lowest spot on the face of the earth. Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River running down here. This area is known as Judea. To the north of that, the northern part of this yellow area was known as Samaria. The lower part of this area is known as Idumea, but Judea is the prime slice, if you will, of Palestine in Jesus' time, then Samaria, and then this lighter blue area here is called Galilee in proximity to the Sea of Galilee. This orange area, which many times extends further out, this was called Decapolis. It had some territory on the western side of the Jordan River, but most of its territory was on the eastern side, Decapolis, originally a federation of ten Deca Greek cities, polis, the word for city, <clears throat> hence Decapolis. <clears throat> and then to the south of that, again, this light blue area here was called Perea. At one time, that was called the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. 
but Perea is the name given to it, the area on the other side of Jordan. Now, why did I put this on our screen here? The ministry begins. Look at the top of the page, your first page of notes for part number three, first bullet under number one. The Gospel of John gives a day-by-day account of the first week of the ministry of Jesus. The way Culver puts it in his textbook is this. He calls this opening steps, not quite public, not quite public, and not yet with a large following. Jesus' ministry has begun, but he's not yet public with a large following. That will happen, but not yet. Now, at this point, let's open in our Bibles to John chapter 1, because I want to point out something generally, and then we'll look at it more specifically as we progress on. Gospel of John chapter 1, last night we looked at the first 18 verses, very normally called John's prologue. With verse 19, John starts the record that relates to the life of Christ. I want you to look at verse 29. You see how verse 29 begins? The next day. So the block of verses from verse 19 through verse 28 describes one day, and then verse 29 through verse 34 describes the next day. We have two days in succession so far. Then we drop down to verse 35, and it says the next day again meaning the third day in succession. And the record that we have there from verse 35 down through verse 43 is the record of what took place, or or verse 42, excuse me, of what took place on the third day. Look at verse 43, the next day. So we have a record of one, two, three, four days in a row now, and that goes to the end of the chapter, And then chapter 2 begins with these words, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, which would mean the third day after the last day that had been mentioned. Now when you put all those together with a little bit of gap between the fourth day and the seventh day, we have essentially a week. We have a record of the first week of Jesus' ministry. So what happened during that first week of his ministry? I don't know whether you can see that. I think probably you can see this pretty well from where you are because I can see the back screen from here. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm somewhat sight impaired at this point in my life. Uh, I couldn't see it. Yes, I can see it. Okay, with the help of my spectacles, I can see it. So you have a minimum of things to record here, just a couple strategic blanks under the column, summary of the event. I wish we could take the time to read fully all these verses, but time-wise, we just can't do that. But let me summarize what we have in this succession of days. Yes, sir, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm a little confused. You said in chapter 2, where it begins on the third day. Uh, How is that again? That is the third day after the previous day that has been mentioned. The third day after the previous day. The third day after the day that is described in verse 43 as 
the next day, which would be the fourth day in succession. Everybody with me on that? It's the best place. Uh, otherwise, how do we understand the third day? Third day after what? And John has clearly given a succession of things. And remember that in our Bibles, chapter divisions and verse divisions are a great convenience, which we have that were not originally there. So without the interruption of those chapter divisions, that would have just continued on without any break whatsoever. No, no, no. It could not, because the location is totally different. Location is totally different. It could not. Okay, looking at this, the first thing that I want to point out is that, believe it or not, on this chart and on the screen, which is just a little bit uh, smaller version of what you have in your notes, I didn't include in, the next day, the next day again, the next day, and on the third day, but we have the names of days of the week. You might say, how in the world does somebody come up with that? Because it doesn't name days of the week here. Well, again, I wouldn't have figured that out. I wouldn't have figured that out. But with the help of those who know Bible culture, you can figure out the last of these days in succession and then work backwards from there. You say, what do you mean? I mean this day right here, on the third day, which is the Wednesday, you might say, how is that a Wednesday? In Jewish culture, the marriage of a maiden was normally on a Wednesday, and there's no reason, there's nothing in the context that indicates that this was other than the marriage of a maiden. Okay? So you begin with, third, with Wednesday and work backward, and we can establish the days of the week. Culver does it that way, um, Hendrickson does it that way, and others. So, let's look specifically what happened on each of these days now. The first of these days in succession, found in verses 19 through 28, is a Thursday, and essentially, the event can be summarized in these words. John the Baptist's testimony to a Sanhedrin committee who demanded a clarification of his mission. What was John the Baptist doing at this time? He was preaching, and great crowds were coming to him. The Synoptic Gospels tell us that all Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea was going out to him, and all the region around about Jordan were going out to him. I don't think that means every single person from that area, but it means that a whole lot of people were going out to him and hearing him preach and receiving the baptism that he was administering. And the religious leadership wanted to know, what's the deal here? What's the deal? So they went out with a very simple question. And their very simple question is, as stated in verse 19, who are you? Who are you? And John begins to answer that question with some negatives. His first answer is, I am not the Christ. That is, I am not the Messiah. Then, John goes on to say, in response to their question, are you Elijah? He says, I am not. Are you the prophet? And the prophet, I think, no doubt, has reference to what Moses wrote about, his prophetic uh, passage about the Messiah to come, who would be a prophet like Moses. John the Baptist said, no, I'm not that prophet either. Well, who are you then? 
And what did John do? How did John answer this? John answered by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And when he quoted from the prophet Isaiah, the, the prophecy specifically said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. In saying that, what was John saying? Here's the answer to your question. I am the forerunner of the promised Messiah. That was the answer that they got. That's what happened on the first day as far as John records it for us. The next day that begins in verse 29. The next day. The return of Jesus from the wilderness. What had happened in the wilderness? In the wilderness, Jesus had been tempted. Jesus had been tempted by the devil. The Lord Jesus returned from the wilderness and as John sees Jesus coming, I mean, these memorable words, John must have indicated, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Here he comes. Here comes the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, let's fast forward to verse 35 and the next day. By now we've come to Saturday. Two disciples of John the Baptist, one specifically named here, Andrew, the other not named, but that gives us the clue to identify that second unnamed individual as none other than John, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, Andrew and John follow Jesus. Because John, a second time, has announced, Behold the Lamb of God, and two of his disciples left him to follow Jesus. John made the announcement and lost two disciples. Yeah. Well, still on that day, we read two more things of significance happen. One is stated clearly, the other, I think, we can, by implication, conclude. And it's the rest of your statement. Each of these individuals, that is Andrew and John, then went and found their own brother. What is stated explicitly is that Andrew went and found his brother, Simon. It says, he found Simon first. Now, you know, it could be concluded that was the first thing he did. But many commentators, and I'm in agreement with them, say that he did that first, and John followed suit and found his brother also. If that's the case, then on this day, we have four individuals follow Christ. We find Andrew and John and Simon, whom we are more accustomed to call Simon Peter or Peter, and James. Two sets of brothers follow Jesus. The first four disciples follow Jesus. And what did it result from? The announcement of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God. The next day, what we would call Sunday on our calendar, and this one especially fascinates me, and I really wish we had time to stop the clock and dwell on this, but I can't. On this day, Philip 
followed Jesus. Now, let me start to read this passage, beginning in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And the indication is pretty clear. Philip followed him. What did Philip do then? Philip went and found his friend Nathanael. I love the interchange here. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, what, what, what a memorable and favor, uh, famous response this is. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You know the reputation of Nazareth. Nazareth doesn't have such a good reputation as a town. And you're telling me that the Messiah will come out of Nazareth? You might ask the question, why did Nazareth have such a bad reputation? Where, where did it get a reputation like that? The, the best answer that I've seen on that is that located not far from Nazareth was a government and military center which was called Sepphoris or Diocesarea. Uh, excavations have been done there in recent years and articles have been written about that in uh, archaeological journals and theological journals. That was not far from the city of Nazareth and its reputation probably flowed into the city of Nazareth. Uh, I, I don't want to reflect on places where military bases are, but sometimes things that are somewhat unsavory grow up around there. And that seems to be what at least influenced the opinion that people had about Nazareth. So Nathaniel's, Nathaniel's response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What would you have said if you were Philip? And Nathaniel responded to you in that way. You know what Philip said? Come and see. Come and see. Philip was absolutely convinced that if Nathaniel would just come and see for himself, he would not be disappointed, but he would be convinced. Let me read to you specifically what happened. And this is so fascinating. Jesus saw, this is verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, or in whom there is no guile. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, here comes a sinless man. No, he didn't mean that. He couldn't have said that about anybody. But I think what he clearly did mean by that is, here comes a man who is really serious about his relationship to God. Look at how the conversation continues. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? How do you know to say this about me? Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And look at what follows. Jesus answered him, before Philip came to you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, that might not seem to have any significance whatsoever. I, I just saw where you were before Philip called you, and, and that's how I knew about you. Now, there's got to be much more connected with it than that. And, and in part, the reason I say that is because the very next words that come out of Nathaniel's mouth in verse 49 are, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He has changed from saying, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, to, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. Why the change? I think the indication is very clear that when Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
I think it means that Jesus knew what Nathanael was doing under the fig tree. And you know what it must mean that Nathanael was doing under the fig tree? Nathanael was in communication with God. Nathanael was meditating on the scriptures. And I think we can even put our finger on the passage in scripture. I think Nathanael was meditating most likely on Genesis 28. You might say, where in the world did that come from? Let me read to you just the end of this. Verse 50, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that causes commentators to conclude, and I think they're absolutely right in that, that Nathaniel was probably meditating on the passage in the book of Genesis where Jacob had his ladder dream and there was a ladder that went up to heaven and angels were ascending and descending on that ladder. Jesus knew so much about Nathaniel, and Nathaniel recognized that pretty quickly and said, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Do you know what has just happened in four successive days, really in just the latter two of those four successive days? The first four disciples followed Jesus. Who were they? Andrew, John, and each of their brothers, Simon Peter and James, that's four, then Philip and Nathaniel. Six disciples have followed Jesus. You know, one of the things that we conclude from that, and it's a pretty easy conclusion, the 12 disciples didn't follow Jesus all at once on one occasion. When we study the scriptures carefully, when we seek to harmonize all the information that we have in the four Gospels, it seems pretty clear that the disciples followed Jesus in stages of ever, ever closer attachment to him. And, and we'll see this a little bit later, but it's not until well into the second year of his three-year ministry that Jesus officially finalizes the call of the twelve, and they are named. Read about that in Matthew 10 and the parallel passages. But we're still not finished with this initial week of Jesus' ministry, and we fast forward a little bit to the final day of this week, and it's the third day after Philip and Nathanael followed Jesus. It was a Wednesday by Jewish custom. It was at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Jesus performs his first miracle, his first miracle. You might say, how do we know this was his first miracle? It's what we're told in verse 11 of chapter 2. This, the first of his signs. You know, I used to love asking a question in New Testament survey when we were talking about Jesus and talking about those growing up years of Jesus when he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and favor with man. And I, I would ask the students, do you think that as Jesus was growing up, especially as Jesus was being trained as a carpenter, which is what a Jewish father had as one of his most serious responsibilities to train his son in a particular trade so that he'd be able to be independent in the world, do you think maybe that some miracles were wrought there? And then I would tell the class, I remember reading a story about 
Joseph and Jesus working in the carpenter shop, and they were making a bed for the king of Edessa, I think it was. And as they were cutting the wood to make this bed for the king of Edessa, one of the pieces was cut too short. And, and carpenters have a favorite saying among them, measure twice and cut once. Because <laughs> if you cut it wrong, you know, you've just wasted a piece of wood. Well, in that story, the piece was cut too short. And in that story, do you know what Jesus did? He made it long enough. And I would say to the class, what do you think? Plausible? And I would love to hear some. I wasn't really trying to trap them. But I would love to hear some of the students say, well, yeah, he could have done that. And then there was always somebody in the class who would say, no, didn't happen. And I would say, why do you say that? You know what they would do? Quote the verse of Scripture, John 2, 11, this first of signs did Jesus in Cain of Galilee. This is where his miracles started. We have apocryphal gospels which give all kinds of stories of miracles that Jesus did. Sadly, both positive miracles of healing and negative miracles of, you know, making a guy's arm go numb or limp or whatever. Like the famous story of, you know, the rainstorm and a, and a puddle and all the kids playing in the mud puddle and fashioning things in the mud and Jesus forms sparrows and <laughs> claps his hands and his sparrows fly off. Plausible? No. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. And, as was pointed out last night, to finish out our blank there, he changed the water into, into wine, thus manifesting his what? Glory. If we didn't have John 1.11, or if we had a blank in John 1.11 that we had to fill in, and he manifested his, what would be, what would we be prone to say? Power, probably, you know. But John says he manifested his glory. Remember how we said that John in that prologue said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. His glory was largely veiled during his life on earth, but it shone through sometimes, and here's one of the times. Did you have a question? That, that's a good question. That's a good question. I think that's a, that's a very reasonable. I think that's a very reasonable conclusion that you make. You know that Mary, Mary has watched this child grow, and and one of the most fascinating things I think we're told by Doctor Luke is that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. There were a lot of things stored up in the treasure house of Mary's heart in regard to those first things, those, those first events that are recorded for us in the infancy narratives, but then also the things that took place after that as Jesus grew. Again, his, his obedience and all that. Well, we need to move on here from that chart. The duration of Jesus' ministry. At the very bottom of the page, it says a very popularly used book on the life of Christ. When I was in college, 
was by a renowned Scottish preacher and teacher who lived from 1848 to 1927. And I've mentioned him already, but I'll mention him again. His name was James Stalker. His book was simply entitled The Life of Christ. He summarized Jesus' ministry, that is, Jesus' active public ministry. He summarized it in this way. Now, you might say, how, how do we know how long Jesus' ministry was? I think most of us, if I asked you the question, most of us would have responded, his ministry was three years. We, we, we kind of know that. We almost know that, you know, intuitively. I don't, I don't know how you can know that intuitively, but we just, we just know. His ministry was three years. How do we know that? How did, how did, how did somebody conclude that? Well, the slide on, on the screen right now, in brief without going into detail, indicates how we know that. We know that from the Gospel of John. If, if we only had the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we did not have the Gospel of John, I'll tell you what, we would be really hard-pressed to figure out exactly how long Jesus' ministry lasts. You might say, uh, well, what do you mean? The fact of the matter is that it's the Gospel of John that pays very careful attention to the feasts, especially the Feast of Passover. And when you make your careful observations on the Feast of Passover, and John mentions a couple other feasts too. He mentions tabernacles. He mentions dedication. He mentions an unnamed feast in chapter 5 and verse 1. In chapter 4, he mentions Jesus' words, there are yet four months to harvest. But you put all those things together and you come up with a conclusion the Jesus ministry lasted three years. So how should we structure those three years? Well, here we go. Here, I think, is a very simple suggestion, the suggestion given by James Stalker, and I think a very good one, and it's pretty easy to remember. Year number one of Jesus' ministry, he called the year of obscurity or the early Judean ministry the year of obscurity, called the year of obscurity because we don't know a whole lot about what happened in that year. And again, to quote Culver, Jesus was not yet public, not yet with a large following. This is called the early Judean ministry. I'm going to give a couple notes that will fit at the bottom of the page uh, after we have finished the superstructure here. Year number two, the year of popularity. Now, to be sure, Stalker refers to it as the year of public favor. I, I think popularity is one good word to use in, that place, in, in its place. The year of obscurity, year number one. The year of popularity, year number two. Year number two is also referred to as the Great Galilean Ministry. Now, whereas we don't have a whole lot of information for that first year of ministry, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment, we have a wealth of information for the second year. We have a ton of information in the Gospels. And Jesus is very popular. I will show you a slide a little bit further along, uh, probably in our next session, of the growing popularity that Jesus experienced during that second year of ministry. But we move to the third year. The third year is known as the year of opposition. The year of opposition. And that third year is broken into two parts. The first part is the retirement ministry. 
The second part is the later Judean and Perean ministry. So, the year of obscurity, the year of popularity, the year of opposition. Let's make some observations. Anybody have any questions on that right now? There are a couple observations I want to make, and they'll be in the form of notes, and uh, we can look at the notes on the screen here now. Here we go. Note number one. Note number one. The information for the first year, the year of obscurity, comes from the Gospel of John alone. Only the Gospel of John gives us information on that first year of his ministry. You might find that surprising, but that is factually true. Note number two. The fact that the first year is also referred to as the early Judean ministry does not mean that Jesus was always and only there, that is in Judea, during his first year of ministry. Uh, Jesus traveled in the land. How far is it to travel from Judea up to Galilee, for example? Uh, Let's approximate about 70 miles. Now, again, as we said last night, you know, you would not take a bus up there. You would not take a tour bus up there. Tour bus, we can do it in a couple hours in the Holy Land, especially even with a couple stops along the way. But it would be a few days worth of travel. But it was a few days worth of travel that they commonly made. But the early Judean ministry focuses on where the primary activity, at least the activity that we have the information about in the Gospel of John, took place. Let's go to number three. Number three. For the second year of his ministry, we have a wealth of information, particularly in the synoptic Gospels. The synoptic Gospels. Gospels. I know it stayed a little differently on my slide. Sometimes I had to state things a little bit differently to fit them in space-wise. But the synoptics, synoptics. What are the synoptics? They're the Gospels other than John. So they're Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why are they called the synoptics? Because there's a remarkable similarity in the material that we find in Matthew and Mark and Luke. The Gospel of John, if you can believe this, and I know at first it sounds like that couldn't be possible, but trust me, it is. The Gospel of John, 92% of the material in the Gospel of John is unique to the Gospel of John. That is not found elsewhere. You might say, couldn't be that much. Trust me. That's all I can say. Trust me. 92%, yeah. Uh, Mark is kind of the converse of that. I think it's like 93% of Mark's material is found in one or more of the other Gospels. Mark is kind of what I oftentimes refer to as the the common denominator Gospel. But John, so much of his material is unique. But remember, in saying that, one of the things we really have to emphasize is that there's a, a, a thorough harmony between all four of the Gospels. All right, let's go to the fourth point here, fourth point. Although the primary focus of this second year, the year of popularity, was in Galilee, that does not mean that Jesus never left there during that year. Matter of fact, I think one of the things that the Gospel makes very, very clear is that Jesus was present in Jerusalem especially for Passover, 
and also for some of the other feasts. Gospel of John makes it clear he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, and he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Dedication, or what we would call Hanukkah today, in chapter 10, verse 22. But Jesus was present in Jerusalem for Passover, to be sure. But the focus of the second year of his ministry is Galilee. We'll say more about that a little bit later. There's room for some more points here. Number five, number five. Opposition, and the third year is called the year of opposition. Opposition to Jesus began before the year of opposition. It actually began much earlier in his ministry. Much earlier. However, it will climax in that third year. At the end of that third year, the opposition to Jesus has come to the point where Jesus will be executed. And they will think that they have achieved their purpose. Now when I say that opposition began very early in Jesus' ministry, I, I, do, you, do you know what I would mean there? Very early in Jesus' ministry, he cleansed the temple and in connection with that cleansing of the temple, the religious, religious authority said, what, what sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? You know, show us some sort of sign that will verify the fact that you have the authority to do this. They, they manifested their hostility in response to Jesus' manifestation of his authority. So opposition begins very, very early, but it grows and grows. And in the third year, it is really becoming outright and it really will come to a conclusion at the end of that third year. I think there's room for one more. The third year is called the year of opposition and is divided into two parts, the retirement ministry and later Judean ministry. That, those two parts were virtually equal parts of six months each. That might, sound, that might seem to be too convenient, too neat, too easy to remember. But the fact of the matter is, from the chronological information we have, especially supplied by the Gospel of John, that that is, in fact, what we have. Now, maybe just a quick word about retirement ministry. Retirement ministry. Now, I don't want to reflect on anybody in the room who, be, who may be retired. Anybody retired in the room? Anybody retired? Okay. Is retirement a good thing? Retirement a good thing? You know... I, I, am I retired right now? That's an oxymoron. <clears throat> That's an oxymoron. <laughs> this is true. Am I retired right now? Well, I don't know how to answer that, really. I don't have a job. <laughs> but I don't like to think of myself as retired or done working. But anyhow, that's, that's where I am right now. But with regard to the retirement ministry, it doesn't mean that Jesus retired. <laughs> it doesn't mean he retired. But essentially, it means that he retreated or withdrew from his ministry to the crowds that he might devote time primarily to instructing the disciples. That, that's what is meant by the use of the term retirement there. Okay? All right. Let's see if we can wrap up this session. And this, this will be one of, the, one of the sessions that will be most easy to wrap up in a nice, nice amount of time here before we're worn out. The next session will probably take to about three this afternoon. <laughs> Not really, but it will be a bit longer. 
Number three, a fascinating snapshot of Jesus' ministry. This quotation, the early church historian Eusebius, who wrote during the reign of Constantine the emperor, writing in the 4th century AD, quotes a church leader named Papias as affirming that, <clears throat> quote, Mark became the interpreter of Peter. The interpreter of Peter. And wrote his version of the gospel. Mark Strauss, in his book entitled Four Portraits, One Jesus, states that. We'd find that information in lots of sources. For this reason, many authors refer to the second gospel as the gospel of Peter according to Mark. In our Bibles, it's called Mark. The gospel of Peter according to Mark. I, I think that, that, that's a good, a good way of referring to it. I'd like you to take your Bible right now and I want you to turn to a passage with me. And, and, and this passage is not in the Gospels, interestingly. But rather, this passage is in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> Here's the next paragraph in your notes. I don't know whether you can fill in a couple blanks and turn to Acts 10 at the same time. Probably have difficulty doing that, but here we go. In Acts 10, we read the account of the advance of the Gospel to a new and amazing frontier... Peter, a very fastidious Jew, by the way, is divinely instructed to take the gospel to a man named Cornelius, a centurion in the Roman army stationed in Caesarea. He, that is Cornelius, was also a God-fearer and very devout. In short, he was a good and godly man, I mean, a man that prayed, a man that was very generous in giving alms, a man who was even described as fearing God, he was uh, what I would call a good and godly man who needed to hear the gospel and trust Christ as Savior. That's, that's what Acts chapter 10 is all about. Dr. Luke gives us the account of Peter's arrival there and his presentation of the gospel to Cornelius and his relatives, that is Cornelius' relatives and Cornelius' close friends, probably other military men. Peter's words in the house of Cornelius are recorded in Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. By the way, do you remember how God got Peter, that very fastidious Jew, to go into the house of Cornelius, a Gentile? I mean, Peter would have thought, holy cow, you Jews don't go into Gentile houses. No, no. How did God do that? The vision of the sheet come down from heaven when Peter was on the rooftop in Joppa and, and very hungry at that. And the vision of the sheet come down from heaven with all kinds of animals in it, clean and unclean. And the command, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, oh, are you kidding? <laughs> There's too many unkosher animals in there. Can't do it. And the vision came a second time and a third time. And God made it very clear what Peter was to do. Well, we're going to read this passage right here. As a matter of fact, and I know lots of you guys have, uh, you know, devices where you can time something. Kyle, do you have something where you can time me when I read here? Okay. All right. We're going to time what Peter said in the house of Cornelius. Okay. I'm starting to read in verse 34. You might as well start timing right now. 
So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and of the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Kyle, how much time? A minute and 20 seconds. Guys, do you think that Peter spoke for a minute and 20 seconds in Cornelius' house? Most likely he spoke longer than that. Now again, I'm not, you, you do, please do not misunderstand me. I'm not being critical of scripture here. What I'm saying is we oftentimes have abbreviated accounts. We have to. If we had every single word of every single thing in scripture, we'd probably have to be taking our Bible to church in a wheelbarrow, you know. Uh, it'd be a lot longer. So it's a summarization of what Peter said there. But you know what Peter said there in presenting the gospel to Cornelius? And by the way, the very next words read that while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Cornelius and all the friends that he had gathered there truly trusted Christ as their Savior. And it was certified by an unmistakable sign of the Holy Spirit coming. So the presentation of the gospel by Peter was used by God to bring Cornelius and those others to a saving knowledge of Christ. Now here's my, here's my question to you as we finish this section this morning. Since this is a summarization of the gospel right here, I think it is a good simple summarization of what we find in the Gospel of Mark, remember, Mark is sometimes referred to as the Gospel of Peter, according to Mark. If that's the case, how would you construct a three-point outline on the life of Christ from Dr. Luke's summary of what Peter said in the house of Cornelius? What would your three points be? Maybe we should just end the session right here, and I let you think about this, rather than go drink coffee or walk around or use the restroom or go outside and breathe fresh air, or whatever you want to do, come up with your outline, you know, and turn it in before we start session number three. But, you know, you don't have a whole lot of choices here. You know what my choices would be? Very simply this. Point number one. Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Summary of his ministry. Point number two. They killed him. Point number three, God raised them from the dead. That's it. So 
the interesting thing there is that first point. Peter's summary of Jesus' ministry, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. You know, it's the Gospel of Mark especially that focuses on a number of occasions when Jesus met demon-possessed individuals and Jesus had interchanges with demonic spirits. Again, we find that in the other Gospels as well, but we find it more emphasized in the Gospel of Mark than anywhere else. Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Well, I think that we might just take a little bit of a break right now, just a little one, because we have a, uh, a pretty large task for part number four, which I'm entitling The Miracle Working Teacher and His Chosen Twelve. I have three things incorporated into that title and three things incorporated into it purposefully, but let's have a brief word of prayer here and then we'll just take a break for a few minutes and I'll wet my whistle a little bit here to be able to go on. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for giving us the opportunity to once again uh, consider the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the record that we have in the Gospel of John of how the ministry began and especially the accounts of the call of those first disciples to follow Christ. And Lord, once again, I, I, am, I am so captured by the fact that those men in seeing Christ introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and then by Philip to Nathaniel as the, Messiah, the Son of God, the Messiah, and, and, and how they followed. They followed. And Lord, I thank you for what certainly was your work in their hearts in drawing them to Christ. Lord, thank you for that work in our lives too. Bless us, uh, refresh us in this little break now in Jesus' name.
Ready now. Good. Uh-oh. All right, I think we need to get started on this session here. Part number four. This will kind of be the, the midpoint when we get past number four. Then we're past the halfway point, theoretically, at least four out of, out of seven messages here. Uh, but there's a, big, <clears throat> there's a big bite for us on this one. <clears throat> As I indicated already, I've chosen to entitle this one, The Miracle Working Teacher and His Chosen Twelve. The focus on this particular lesson is going to be on the ear of popularity. What was another name for the ear of popularity? The Great Galilean Ministry. Year two, the ear of popularity, the Great Galilean Ministry. So the first thing that I want to rapidly say something about is, as you can see on the slide up here, year two HQ. Year two, the second year of his ministry, HQ headquarters. <clears throat> now here is a map, and there are a couple things that I want to draw your attention to on the map. You probably cannot read them from where you're sitting, but this red arrow is pointing to a dot right here, and labeled on top of it is Nazareth. So, the first of our points here the arrowhead is his rejection in Nazareth. We read about this in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, rather long section by Luke. It can be summarized in these ways. Jesus went to his home synagogue. Remember, Nazareth is where he was raised, where he was reared, where the greatest number of, his, number of years in his life were spent. He went to his home synagogue and was afforded the privilege of reading the scriptures. He read from Isaiah 62. You should abbreviate Isaiah there if you can. Isaiah 61, excuse me, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Let me read to you from Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. 
he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And then he said, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, we can summarize with the rest of, the, rest of this first point here. Their response, which initially seemed favorable. Verse 22 states, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So, their response, which initially seemed favorable, verse 22, soon turned hostile. Soon turned hostile. And they even tried to kill him. Matter of fact, this section ends in verses 28 and 29, and I don't have the time to emphasize what's be what is between verse 22 and verses 28 and 29. But look at verses 28 and 29. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But he passing through their midst, he went away. Wow. From their initial response wondering at the gracious words that came out of his mouth to being filled with such anger that they took him to the brow of a hill, the cliff where the city of Nazareth was located, and wanted to push him, on that, push him off that cliff and end his life. So, Jesus left Nazareth. Now, another arrow, I'll do that again, another arrow has come onto the map. This arrow is pointing to a little dot that is located right here. It's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It is the town of Capernaum. Capernaum. So, next arrowhead in your notes is transfer to Capernaum. In the next verse, verse 31, Luke says that he went down to Capernaum. This is now called his own city. It's not called his own city here. But in a parallel reference, uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, I believe it is, Matthew makes reference to this very city without even naming the city. He just calls it his own city. And Matthew does that because this, this city now, the city of Capernaum, became so familiarly connected with Jesus. It became year two HQ, the headquarters for his second year of ministry, the year of great popularity. And it is likely that he became a resident member of Peter's household there. We don't have any verse that states that absolutely, plainly, and clearly. But I think by implication of many things, we are led to conclude that most likely, Jesus became a resident of Peter's house. For sure, Jesus didn't move from Nazareth, where his home was, to Capernaum and get his own home there. Now, remember what Jesus said when somebody came 
uh, apparently desiring to follow him, and Jesus said, wait a minute, you better stop and take stock of things before you follow me to see if you're wholeheartedly in this. Because the birds have nests, the foxes have dens, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have his own house. Continuing in that point, and this is rather remarkable. I'm flipping over in my Bible to Matthew chapter 11, where I want to read some verses that are uh, striking verses in this respect. But to finish our point, well, let me read the passage first. From Matthew chapter 11, beginning of verse 20. Listen to these words. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works have been done. Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will be exalted to heaven will you? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Those words are scary. Those words are scary. Those words are sobering. When we read those, verse, those words, if we don't stop and just take very careful notice of what Jesus has said there. We've made a big mistake. Big mistake. Every year in New Testament survey, I would stop and make an appeal to the class on the basis of these verses. To whom much is given, much is required. And you know the way the rest of our point, and by the way, if I have missed any blanks or if you're not clear about any blanks, just feel free to raise your hand and say, wait a minute, we, we missed a blank or... I didn't get a blank or something, but here's the way the rest of our point goes. Although most of his miracles were done in that vicinity. What vicinity? The north part of the Sea of Galilee, that part of Galilee, the area where Capernaum was located and Chorazin and Bethsaida. Although most of his miracles were done in that vicinity, yet they did not repent. And thus he denounced Capernaum and its neighboring cities and predicted severe judgment on it. Matter of fact, again, the words are so sobering. Capernaum, most of my miracles.